0: Visit BroadwayBullet.com to subscribe for free and don't miss a single episode. In this episode, Megan McGinnis discusses her long history and path to New York City with the musical Daddy Long Legs. Andrew Lippa and Rachel Routh talk about the Dramatist Guild Fund and the many ways they help artists. Composer-lyricist Ryan Scott Oliver shares two tracks from Foxes, a musical in progress, and Danny Ashkenasi discusses his new musical, Speakeasy, running at Theatre for the New City February 18th through March 13th. all right a lot of stuff going on i'm really excited that uh broadway world has started to feature our episodes so uh tell your friends spread the word and I uh, help get the word out. Also, I'm just really happy. If any of you like listening to audiobooks, I do a lot of audiobook narrating. And I finished the first two books in a series, Circles of Hell. Hell's Super and A Cold Day in Hell. And uh, these are by far the best things I've ever narrated. Very, very funny. If you like satire, if you like kind of crazy humor, Christopher Moore, say a little bit, urge you to check it out. I get to do a lot of fun voices. I have a lot of fun with it. And Mark Cain is a great author. So again, that's Circles of Hell, Hell's Super, and Cold Day in Hell. Hope you check that out.
1: Special thanks to our location
0: sponsor. Thanks to the Dramatist Guild Fund for welcoming us to their space for today's podcast. Providing the music hall at DGF for writers to use for free is one of the many ways the Dramatist Guild Fund supports writers. I encourage you to find out more about DGF by visiting their website at www.dgffund.org or connecting with them on Twitter at DGFund. A location sponsorship also goes out to the longest running play in America, Sheer Madness, now finally in New York City at the New World Stages. Go check out this funny show that'll leave you laughing and guessing the entire way through. And no, that's not what they told me to say. I saw the show. Well, we've got three great interviews for you and a couple of great songs. So let's get the podcast going. On the boards. I am in Megan McGinnis's lavish dressing room. 800 square feet of your awesomeness for the star of Daddy Long Legs. How are you doing?
1: I think you mean 50 square feet of cotton candy colored walls and some family photos.
0: (laughs) Don't destroy the illusion for those people studying theater.
1: (laughs) Yes. So sorry. I do have my own humidifier, though.
0: Well, I have to say, I think I'm at a misfortune. It was unfortunate that I got to see Daddy Longlegs last night because I don't think I can keep any sense of unbiased. In the performance you gave, that was absolutely flawless from beginning to end.
1: Thank you, thank you so much.
0: And uh, it, it truly is a tour de force. I'm, I'm here in your dressing room because I know I didn't want to interrupt your day of uh, your rest that you need because you sing for almost two hours straight in this show.
1: Yeah, uh, I think I sing 20 songs, um, something like that 17, 20. Um, yes, thank you so much for coming here. Uh, I actually just moved on Tuesday uh, further uptown, so I'm getting used to what the commute is like, and if I'd come down earlier, I wouldn't have had time to go back home, so thank you for coming here.
0: So you've been with Daddy Longlegs for a while in its development process and at different performances, haven't you?
1: Uh, yes, my first production of Daddy Longlegs was in September of 2009 at the Rubicon Theater in Ventura. Uh, that was the first production that Daddy Longlegs had. Um, So I played Jerusha there and then um, at 13 other regional theaters, including production in Winnipeg, Canada and in London.
0: And you still keep your performance crystal fresh. Uh, How do do you do that for uh, so so long, over so much time?
1: Uh, I think it's mostly that the journey is so great that once I start, it's really kind of just there in front of me. I don't really think about keeping it fresh. It just seems kind of easy to do. I mean, the show's not easy, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Drusha is so alive, so lively, so imaginative. I think that also allows it to be so fresh um, because she's so fresh. (laughs) Um, Also, the fact that I deliver most of the show straight to the audience, and so their energy changes my performance every night too.
0: I mean, the, the show is written so well. I mean, I truly found found myself several times laughing at the same time I was tearing up. It was the, 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 such emotional moments that were simultaneously hysterical and heartbreaking.
1: Yeah, yeah. The last scene is a really good example of that. I won't.
0: I was early on, even in the first <laughs> act, there were moments just of your just honestly, there were just funny and sad and with your character's journey.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, Drush is so, so real going through situations that are simultaneously hilarious and seemingly catastrophic, you know, as we all feel when we have a terrible day and we just want to cry. But in the end, it actually is pretty funny.
0: So, uh, you, last week you did Ken Davenport kind of organized a first of its kind for an off Broadway show. And you did, a live uh internet broadcast of the show for the first time was that nerve-wracking at all
1: yes it was incredibly nerve-wracking um we haven't released the numbers yet so i'm not going to say anything but i'm really glad i didn't know how many people were watching um but just having the cameras there really honestly the lead-up was more nerve-wracking than the actual performance Uh, i just remember thinking about it at least a good five shows beforehand wow, okay, there's going to be more than, there are going to be more than 130 people watching the show. There are going to be thousands of people, and people keep interviewing me about it and asking me how scared I'm going to be, and so now I'm really scared. But then the day of, um, we did a run-through in the afternoon for the director and the cameras, just so they could get a handle on what was going on. Um, and we did it full out just in case anything went wrong, technically, that evening, but Ken said, there's no way we're using it because we really, we want to do this live. And um, and that act, that run-through was actually more nerve-wracking because I was thinking so much about that evening. Then once we started the show that night, I didn't think about it. I mean, maybe occasionally I did think about it in the most exciting way because, as I was saying, Drew should deliver so much of the show to the audience. I was thinking, oh, this is getting across to so many more people. And that made me really happy.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really... Uh, have you? De- I know the ro- show was originally s- scheduled to go into January. Is that still the case, or do you know? If is it, has it been extended yet?
1: No, we were um, open-ended, so we have no closing date set.
0: Well, I, I really hope people come on in because it's uh, it's a real. There's very few times I really champion, and I've already been telling everybody, you know, at the Dramatist Guild Fund today that they gotta go check out this show because. It's a small, intimate little show, but I tell you, it packs an emotional wallet bigger than most Broadway productions.
1: I mean, I, that's why I've stuck with it for so long, is I think it's such an incredible piece that it only has two people, and yet it tells such a wonderful journey, and I think it's been really effective uh, across the country, and we've played different size of houses. Um, the Rubicon was I guess, maybe hundred, around the same size as the Davenport, up to, we played La Morada, which was, I think, 1,200 seats. So it really does work in any space. Um, all it needs is people to watch it.
0: So I'm pretty sure that uh, the New York run and, and the reviews and everything is going to guarantee this kind of a cult following. And there are going to be theaters now putting this on for 20, 30 more years. What advice do you have to future actresses taking on this role?
1: Wow, I have not had that question. Hmm. Oh Well, I first of all really hope that... Uh, it will be done for the next 20 or 30 years. I mean, I can't imagine it wouldn't. It's such a wonderful show, and it's so easy to do. Three pieces in the orchestra, two people on stage, one set, costume changes on stage. I can't imagine it's not going to be insanely successful. But what would I say to future Jerushas? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, it'll be interesting, too. I hope that the show runs here long enough that I'll be able to pass it on to somebody and it'll keep going like the Fantastics. I think that would be extraordinary. Um, I would say that, <laughs> you know, it's Jerusha has changed so much for me over the last six years. I found her more difficult to play when I was away from home. Um, I found it to be um, sort of all-consuming, all-encompassing. I felt like my whole day was devoted to preparing for the show because it was so hard. Um but I don't know if it's just the time I've spent with the show or the fact that I'm home now. I don't feel like that is as much the case. And I would want to suggest to future actors that they don't let the show take over their life because it's really nice to have a a full life that's not just about Jerusha. Um, uh, My other piece of advice, though, would be to, (laughs) sort of the opposite of what I just said, to let her take over your life in her attitude because there is something about her that is so special. Every night, whatever I've gone through during the day, I swear she helps me. She's like my guru. Uh, the lesson she teaches me every night. I mean, I guess it's uh, actually sort of bad that I haven't learned them yet after these six years, but I'm only human. Um, so she's there to keep reminding me every night uh, what my goal should be.
0: So one thing that didn't kind of really strike me till the show was over was I for all you sing for every do and it's very clear voice and pure the whole way through. I have a pretty good ear. I didn't once hear one like slightly off note, one moment of hesitancy, one thing clipped and for 2 hours straight and technically how do you how do you prepare for such a demanding vocal performance?
1: Uh I'm really lucky I have uh, I've had a great teacher. I started taking lessons from uh, my teacher when I was 11 years old and I took from her place till now. She's in Los Angeles. Her name's Evelyn Hallis. She's incredible. Um whenever I go home to LA, I still go see her and she's she taught me how to do this. She taught me how to sing for 2 hours and sing healthily and I don't I don't think about it much, which is the really great thing. I feel very lucky. Um, and I feel like she sort of taught me what I was doing before I knew what I was doing. So it's sort of just in my body. Um, you know, there are other things I do, like drinking almost a gallon of water a day, um, uh, and not talking too much, getting lots of sleep. I mean, at least nine hours. If you are a regular really listener, or if you have um,
0: just discovered Broadway and Bullet, I have you know, just set up a Patreon page. a
1: humidifier and the vocal steamer and all the stuff if I'm feeling each tired podcast episode. sort of helps me through. I'm not
0: going to make anything And then there are donations. little things during the show. All donations um, will go to expenses in producing you know, programs and providing flexible part-time jobs to theater students for helping with the follow-up, and more. It's not an Elphabessing by any means. It's not to contribute. Hard singing. Or just click the um, link on our main webpage. So I think that's Thanks feel like in advance for your support benefit, in creating quality programming. You'll say podcast one of the best programming
1: parts is not the singing, but the talking. The singing, I can use my technique, but the talking, I don't really think about it. I mean, you're supposed to speak in a healthy manner, but I don't think about it when I'm talking. Um, and the crying is actually extremely hard on my vocal cords. So those are times when I just sort of uh, just do it <laughs> and drink a lot of water when I'm done.
0: Do you, is that something you have to work out? I mean, we're in a very small intimate theater and you turn around and and you're in tears. Is uh, that a moment you worry about ever?
1: Uh, no, you said something earlier about how well the show is written. And I think that's why I don't worry about it. I mean, I call that part of the show, the monologue. I mean, she has plenty of monologues throughout the show, but for me, that's the monologue. Um, And, uh, you know, it starts with uh, his proposal and then goes all the way to his letter to her. Um, And it's just, I mean, yes, her journey over these two hours is perfect. But that journey over those two minutes is beyond perfect, I think, the way it's written. It's so beautiful. And once I start, I'm just, just in it. I mean, the words are so good. There's no way not to cry.
0: The direction, you're acting, both you and your partner, um, Will, and uh, John Caird's direction is so flawless and seamless. It's it's really, truly hard to see where one begins and one ends. Mm-hmm. There, there are some things I thinking that could be an acting choice, or it's also a really strong directing choice. What was the play and the give and take of, of putting the show together with John Caird?
1: Uh, John is incredibly collaborative, I mean, the fact that you don't know whose choice is what is exactly his style. Um, I had the good fortune, of course, of starting the show early on when it hadn't been staged. So I couldn't even tell you now what was John and what was me um, because we discovered it together. Uh, the first day he showed up and showed us the um, the set and told us about the idea of the trunks, that Jerusha has these eight trunks and everything in her world the downstage portion of the stage, comes from these trunks. You know, there's nothing literal about Jerusha's life, really. You know, the bed is two trunks put together. Her desk is whatever trunk happens to be in front of me. Um The mountains on the farm, walking on the trunks. Um, So once we started with that idea, it was just, all right, let's set up the scene and see where things come from. And people ask me a lot of times how I remember what props come out of what trunks. And I say, well, because... I was there when it was created. John said, "Which trunk looks easy to take books out of?" That one. Great. There it is. Done.
0: Well, I'm I'm very proud to have been able to witness this performance in person. I'm, I'm pretty sure this is a performance that is going to go down as a as a classic, and and for those who saw it. And thank you so much for talking when you have to go on and sing so much in the next. <laughs> A couple hours.
1: Of course. Thank you so much for coming over
0: here. (laughs) Listening Room. Ryan Scott Oliver is currently working on a new musical, We Foxes, a commission by Broadway Across America. And he's sharing a couple of tracks that we're going to play in this episode for you. Ryan Scott Oliver is a Jonathan Larson Grant recipient, Richard Rogers Award winner, Lortel Award nominee, ASCAP Harold Adamson Lyric Award winner, a Dramatist Guild Fellow, and the recipient of residencies at Fifth Avenue Theater, Theater Works Silicon Valley, Weston Playhouse, Cap 21, and San Diego University. So, um, of course, this guy needs some help. (laughs) He's doing very well, but hopefully we can spread his music to more people out there. Uh, This first song we're going to play from We Foxes is called City of Angels
2: got a picture in my head of a photo studio, California, California, I'll have to save lots of bread, but soon I'll double back my dough. And on that day, on that day, I'll watch my shots develop, and I'll see dreams take To the city of angels And still that picture in my head Has a lady well in view Keeps a cap on straight My cap on straight And she can help her else instead Well I don't care much what she do Long as it's great And I can't wait To watch see dreams taking form It's time your luck was changing Will our days come For somewhere warm Like the city of angels Look an angel Look an angel I'll bring an angel
0: We're going to bring another song from We Foxes, from Ryan Scott Oliver, a little later in the program. But right now, we got another great interview.
3: Breaking the Business
0: I am sitting here in the very cozy writer's room, conference room, for the Dramatist Guild Fund, which uh, they're one of our location sponsors for this round-in, so Mm -hmm. we thank them very much. Um, and along with that, they do a lot of great, interesting support work for writers in terms of helping uh, get all that information out, help them with their careers, help them with exposure. And so uh, there's so much stuff going on that we uh, invited Andrew Lippa and Rachel Ruth. Andrew Lippa is president of the Drama Guild's Fund since July. And mm-hmm. Rachel, what, what is your position with the
4: I'm the executive director of DGF. Okay, since two thousand and
0: eleven. All right, so we're here to talk about the the wonderful, you know, the origins of Dramatist Guild Fund. What you guys do, what you're looking for. It's it's fascinating the the programs you've created for authors, <laughs> for authors and writers. Um, now, one thing I looked, I was prompted with this new guild that seemed to be shaped by um, somebody. Other thing, I read an article had read the book Outrageous Fortune which came out recently. Are you familiar with that one? Did we read Rage's hmm. Fortune? Is that a required reading? <laughs> <laughs> For being the president of
5: the journal? Of course I read
0: it. Of oh, yes. course,
5: of course. Yes. I know it by heart.
0: <laughs> it's just like
5: Book of Job. I know that one too. It,
0: well, in any case, have either of you read that one? Yes. It, it was talked yeah. about. Yes,
5: Rachel reads everything. I <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's, she's the executive director of the... She's
4: the I think it was started with uh, Todd London and TDF <laughs> yeah. uh, did that book, Outrageous Fortune, and it really was a great picture of the industry of what writers go through um, to be a writer and the ups and downs of their career and, and what that means. And you don't, you don't necessarily think that a writer who has a Broadway show might also be struggling. And so that book detailed what that was, and it, it really informed um, some of our programs and why we give back.
0: So yeah, the, the statistics in that book weren't heartening about how much, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> about how wealthy everybody thinks that they are. Well, the statistics it, in general
5: aren't heartening, but you know that's that's never stopped anybody yeah. from making anything. You know, that's the whole point. The whole point of our organization is that we want to uh, step in really where where there is need for composers, lyricists, and playwrights in the American theater. So people are making. Uh, plays all over the country. You know, we're mm-hmm. we're, we're a national organization. Uh, for a long time, the Dramatists Guild and the DGF were New York centric mm-hmm. organizations, New York city centric organizations, and we've made a real effort in the past few years. Not only the DGF, but the Dramatists Guild in general, has made a real effort at becoming a national organization and now we're being interviewed by a guy from Montana that wouldn't have happened five years ago and uh, we wouldn't have even known where Montana was five years ago and uh, but we really have uh, we have representatives all over the country and we have a real effort to make uh it's a real effort and a real um uh, 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 real involvement with people from all over the country to say that you know play great plays great playmaking great art happens mm-hmm. e- everywhere in this country not just in the three big cities or the five big cities where you know whatever the cities are where theater's really going on. So our job at the Dramatists Guild Fund is to identify how we can help uh, writers. Uh, that notion of uh, just having a Broadway show there are some people you know the ones we know Andrew Lloyd Webber and Stephen Schwartz and Alan Menken and and, and, and people and who we Andrew celebrate. Uh, well, you know, that, that's, being self referential is really a horrible thing. And, uh, but, uh, the, you know, there are, there are some names of people we know, and they have multiple successes, and they have successes outside of the theater as well in uh, film and uh, television. And, um, you know, those are the examples of people who have been very successful, uh, both in getting their work out and in monetizing it. But there are a great number of writers, uh, the vast majority, in fact. Um, who uh, may have had a, a show on Broadway, mm. show didn't run very long, or it ran mm. just barely, and it was able to just barely pay its weekly costs. And the writers are the ones who don't get paid or get paid very little in those scenarios. And uh, um, oftentimes, you know, writers, it looks like you won the lottery, you got to <laughs> Broadway, but, mm-hmm. you know, uh, 92% of all uh, lottery winners, uh, big payout winners within 18 months actually end up worse off than they were before. So I don't suggest that that statistic is true of our writer members, but the DGF, in a way, is, um, is here as that cushion for, for and, and to help support people
0: along the route, the people who are working their way up the ladder. I, I guess let's start with what is the, the distinction, the separation between the Dramatist Guild and the DGF?
5: So it's very easy. The Dramatist Guild is the organization that represents composers and lyricists and playwrights, and primarily defends Mm -hmm. the rights of copyright and the rights of theater writers in America Mm -hmm. to own their own work and not have it changed without their permission. The Dramatist Guild Fund is the charitable arm of the Dramatist Guild. We are a 501c3 Mm -hmm. charitable corporation. People donate money that is tax deductible to the Dramatist Guild Fund, and in return, we have a series of programs where we support the very writers who belong to the Dramatist Guild and many others who don't. For example, we give out funds every year to theaters. This year, over 100 theaters received funds from the Dramatist Guild Fund uh, in support of theaters who support new writing and living writers. We give out um, emergency grants. Last year, we gave out over $85,000, I think, in emergency grants to writers who had medical expenses or real need who, when they write us, we have a committee that uh, oversees that, uh, looks at it very quickly and responds very quickly and sends money to writers who need it. Our traveling master's program, we send out, um, this year it's going to be 12, mm-hmm. right? 12 traveling master's. People like Sheldon Harnick, Stephen Sondheim, Stephen Schwartz, Alan Mencken, Terrence McNally, Doug Wright, etc. Um, great writers who go out across the country. Some of us have gone to the Kennedy Center American College Theater Festivals, the KC, uh, A, what is it? KCACTF. K-C- A-C-T-F. Yeah. I got it right, actually. I couldn't do the acronym. Um, go out and reach. I, I did one of them in Saginaw, Michigan, um, and Michigan happens to be my home state, so it was a fun trip for me, in the dead of winter, and reached over a 1,000 students, uh, college students who from many universities around the Midwest, all of whom are interested in theater in some capacity or other. The Dramatists Guild Fund makes it possible to spread the gospel of theater, but also to support mm-hmm. writers in doing that.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's one of the programs I want to talk mm-hmm. a little bit more in depth is the traveling masters program really looks, you know, very intriguing. Um, so can you tell us a little mm-hmm. bit more about
3: mm-hmm.
0: what kind of art, what they do mm-hmm. and what kind of uh, writers you choose to do that mm-hmm. program?
4: So the reason that this, this came up is because we realized that there's so much great talent in New York, writers that are working with us and wanting to spread that across the country. So that uh, a small town like in Indiana or in montana can can hear from Andrew Lippa or Steven Schwartz about what it is to create create a show. And all of the people that when we go out on these um on these events, the people in the audience, you know they've they've they know these shows. They love these shows. they listen to them every night. Um, and to get to hear from the creator how they went about creating it is pretty special. Andrew has actually one of my favorite quotes. The first time I met Andrew um, was when he was doing a traveling master in Chicago, um, and he was talking to a high school there, and he has this great line that he probably remembers about, <laughs> about judging yourself and getting out of your own way. He's shaking his head.
5: I don't remember. <laughs> <You> don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember. I'm, <laughs> I'm a savant. It comes and goes. I, I uh, you Terrible. S-
4: <laughs> you said something like, um, when i when i learned to stop judging myself is when i really became creative and the kids in that room
5: that
3: sounds like
4: the, the 16 17 year olds in that room who all they do all day is judge themselves
5: yeah so my i, I remember that now mm-hmm. that you mentioned it and uh, i also one of my favorite quotes came from janine mm-hmm. tesori and i i don't know if she made it up or if she um Uh, took it from somebody else which is you have to see it to be it and uh, Mm -hmm. she is referring when she uses it Mm -hmm. uh, when I saw her use it she was using it in reference to a woman composer uh, Mm -hmm. and you know that's part of our mission at the Dramatist Mm -hmm. Guild Fund as well as the Guild at large is to reach out to underserved populations and um, to look at how many women uh, composers are there on Broadway how many members in our organization are women composers and uh, to try and go out into the world and uh, take, take some of our female composer members and take them out into the world through the Traveling Masters program and show girls and boys out there that, Hell, hello, women write music, too. Um, it's, you know, it's no different than in the symphonic world. Uh, how many female conductors lead a major American orchestra? You know, name one. I know I can name one. Marion Alsop in Baltimore. And 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 why is that the case and what what is what is going on in our mm-hmm. culture that still prohibits women uh people of color from being on podiums of major orchestras and frankly Americans uh, there's so many foreign born <laughs> com- conductors on the podiums that's not our mission but we are related to these kinds of artistic cultural um issues because we also have the issue of diversity uh being on right in front of us and and mm-hmm. wanting to reach out to the population at large as it is not as we thought it was or as it used to be or as some people would prefer it be but we want to reach everybody and so um, that is one of the great things about the traveling masters is that when Lynn Nottage goes um, and speaks Mm -hmm. to a group of students they see a woman playwright they see an African-American woman playwright who won the Pulitzer Prize um, and, and and it is a Um, and there's nothing, you don't need to talk about those things. You just need to talk about the fact that she's a playwright and that she does her work. And when there's a 15 year old in the audience who, who didn't think that until that day, um, that they could, they too could be a playwright. They too could write about their own experience. It's incredible. And I hope, what I hope is that I live a long time. I'm going to be 51 next week. So I hope I live 30 more years at least, um, because, I I hope I get the opportunity to hear from some of these people we've gone to see through this process. And people do, bit by bit, you get the letters. Uh, mm-hmm. Rachel shares letters with me every once in a while, Pe- children and or young adults and or people who have now come to New York and started their careers and said, Hey, 15 years ago, I was at a blah, blah, blah that you spoke at and you won't remember me. I was just in the audience, but... And uh, we want to we want to build that notion. So we're trying to send out as many. This year it's twelve. We hope next year it'll mm-hmm. be fifteen. We hope the year after it can be twenty. All of that has to do with our capacity to raise funds and and to raise awareness, um, so that we can uh, you know make mm-hmm. writing for the theater something that's in the part of the cultural uh, conversation.
0: So so along with that, I'm wondering you know as we talk about building up diversity and and the, and I'm guessing that the dramatist, dramatist Guild Fund. Ex- deals with some of these issues, but I'll call mm-hmm. it, is some of the problem with our diversity what I'll call the opportunity cost of being a playwright? I mean, mm-hmm. like so we're in, until, unless a play is a humongous hit, it's not necessarily a lot of play, and when I say opportunity cost, you, you might be paid <coughs> very little, but then in addition to that, you need to clear up your time to go into a workshop and rewriting. Um, if you mm-hmm. don't live in the same city that is <coughs> choosing to do your works, a lot of time they want you mm-hmm. to come and be on site, and it's not always um that type of job you know the pays enough to justify mm-hmm. just the trip or quitting a one's job to leave mm-hmm. i mean how does opportunity cost play into you know what our mm-hmm. diversity problem is mm-hmm. i mean i've known a few mm-hmm. su- semi-successful like playwrights composers and a lot of the ones i've met quite frankly seem to come from a v- more privileged background whose parents support that whose that they can choose to earn a little less. Uh, yeah, you know? I
5: you know, I'm not a social scientist, yeah. <laughs> so I can't I can't speak to that. No, I I don't mean yeah. that I don't mean yeah. to, to defer the question. I think it's a really important question and it's a question about literacy and the notion of erudition and or culture and or inherited culture. And it is about seeing the thing. Like for example, again, let let's let's use African Americans as an example. They, you know, an African American kid who goes to see death of a salesman, They'll go. They'll go see it. They're educated. They they can read. They understand what it's about. They will do the the the, the uh, necessary research if they're studying it in school. And at the same time, Dead of a Salesman* traditionally is about a white family. And so they see a white family, and they're watching a story about a white family. They go see *Fences*, or they go see a *Raisin in the Sun*, and then they're watching a story about a black family. And the question becomes, and I see this on Broadway. I, I, I you know we we see it all the time. You see the makeup of an audience as well, and the, the percentage of diversity in our audience, depending mm-hmm. on who's in the play or what the play is about. And it's the same with the movie business. My husband's a marketing mm-hmm. executive in the movie business, and, and it's a challenge in the movie business to uh, truly get diverse audiences to go to everything, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, things are targeted and marketed to various mm-hmm. segments of our population, you know, the gay people go, like to go to the gay movies. You know, some straight people go to the gay movies, blah, blah, blah. Again, I'm stepping yeah. into territory I know nothing about other than my own experience. Yeah. I'm the gay person going to the straight movies, by the way. <laughs> and um, and so, you know, our job is not to, I mean, we can do the research and we do it at the dramatist Guild. We just put out the, the first edition of The Count, which was a, a, a really thorough and incredibly powerful, um, merely um, a set of statistics about who's producing who in America and the percentage of women playwrights being presented in theaters across America. And there was a, um, it's helping to continue, I wouldn't say start. I know that conversation is ongoing, but it's helping to continue that conversation. Like, do I want to be a theater or do I want to support a theater where only 20% Mm -hmm. of the playwrights are living or where only 20% of the playwrights are are women, or where only six percent of the playwrights are of any ethnicity other than Caucasian. Like there's there's a question of it makes you it makes you go, wow, is that the kind of world I live in? Is that the kind of world I want to live in? Is that what I want my kids to be a part of? And so we're just here to we're not even asking those questions at the Dramatist mm-hmm. Guild Fund. To focus what we do, what we do is you write a play, mm-hmm. you write a musical. We love you. Like, that's (laughs) it. And we want, and it's a simple, simple message. Mm -hmm. We want people to engage in live theater. And we Mm -hmm. want all people to engage in all stories. That Mm -hmm. means every ethnicity, every sexual orientation, we are open to every everything. Because, and it is our job to encourage it, to, to say to girls, you can be a composer, you can be a playwright to talk to our Hispanic uh, members and populations and to go into cities where there are larger members of uh, uh, Mm -hmm. larger diverse populations or larger uh, populations of minority students and talk to them about an art form that they may not know enough about or that they may not get time to go see in their
0: daily lives. Any parting shots you'd like to get out there to uh, writers or organizations that we maybe haven't mentioned about the DGF? We can be reached at dgfund.org yeah. and there's a big mm-hmm. donate button on the page. <laughs> yeah. He said with a, with a
5: wry smile. Uh, no, I think, yeah. thank you. We really appreciate what yes. you're doing, which is helping to spread um, spread the news about our organization and, and, uh, and the passion for uh, supporting writers so that uh, we can continue to get great work um, on stages across America. Thank you. Thanks for having Wonderful. us
4: on. Thank you. <laughs> On the Boards
6: Dream, dream a little dream of romance Dream of being out in a sudden trance Meeting someone's gaze in the dance Quite by chance Dream, dream of stepping out of this world
0: Love a boy or girl, all, all right, I'm sitting here with Danny Ashkenazi, who is a composer, lyricist, and book writer, uh, sometimes individually and on his current project, Speakeasy. He has done all three. Uh, the show is opening at Theater for the New City. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the dates for?
6: Uh, February 18th through March 13?
0: Okay, and mm-hmm. hopefully this is going to air in that time frame where some people... That would be down. fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you've done a lot. Um, I know you've we talked beforehand. You've done some work in Germany and the translation right. work. So yeah. we've got a lot of stuff to get into. But why don't we start off with uh, what is your current project here? And and what drew you to right. s- this subject matter?
6: So Speakeasy, um, the tagline or the subtitle gives it a little bit away. It's called uh, John and Jane Allison in the Wonderland. So what it is is a a combination of uh, Roaring Twenties New York. It's an exploration of the queer subculture that existed during Prohibition-era New York that flourished within the illegal world of the speakeasy. But it takes, as its inspiration for the storytelling, Alice in Wonderland and Alice to the Looking Glass. And we have two Alices in our story, newlyweds John and Jane Allison. And she goes down the rabbit hole after she kisses her neighbor, Roberta White, as in the right white rabbit, (laughs) and he uh, slides through the bathroom mirror in a public toilet Mm -hmm. after he allows himself to be pleasured by a random man, Um, and that freaks him out, and he literally slides through the mirror, and they both end up in a very strange, Mm -hmm. magical, realist world, and they meet all these crazy characters, just like Alice does, but in this case, the characters are based on historical people of the queer subculture from New York of the era, so, for instance, we have the Mad Hatter, who's also the Red Queen, and his name is Julian Carnation, and he's based on a real performer named Julian Elting, who was a female impersonator, big star of the era, who had a major downfall in the 1930s. He couldn't find work anymore. He couldn't perform in a dress anymore. It was illegal. So he ended up in a dive in a suit with his dress hanging from a hanger. This guy who was a big star, made a lot of money in the 20s, that was the only way he could work in the 30s. And another character is Duchess Bentley, based in part on the Duchess, but also Humpty Dumpty from Through the Looking Glass. And she's based on the notorious black lesbian nightclub singer Gladys Bentley, who sang at the Bangy Club and would take popular songs and change the words to make them about anal sex and things like that. She was very, very daring, more daring than any of the female black singers who were already out there, you know, and known to have bisexual inclinations. She was further out there She staged mock weddings with blonde socialites in Atlantic City, things like that. Well, by the time the 30s rolled in, she couldn't find work anymore either. And by the time the 40s rolled in, she put an article in Ebony Magazine saying, I am a woman again, that I took hormone treatments and I'm not a lesbian anymore. And she was marrying a man and posted pictures of her doing the dishes and things like that, all in a desperate attempt to... At work again so both these very out there queer performers or uh at least it seemed like they were queer performers julian elton we actually don't know what his sexual orientation was he just seemed incredibly conflicted about it <laughs> um but they all took a sticky fall with 1920s the roaring 20s with prohibition and everything being everybody being illegal anyway with the alcohol consumption mm-hmm. um there was a Freudian slip. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, a lot of speakeasy dives actually catered to queer sensibilities for drag queens or for interracial um, same-sex relations. It, it, there was a flourishing subculture in New York. And when Prohibition ended and the state liquor authority established liquor licenses, one of the rules was you were not allowed to even allow a homosexual on the premises. So you would lose your liquor license if you had anything that was homosexual on the premises. So all that queer subculture was pushed away and pushed even further underground. There was no place for them to go. So whereas the 20s was like the first sexual revolution of the 20th century, the 30s was like the worst decade for queer people, gay people, lesbians, transgender, all that. Um, there was no very few places for them to find each other. So the musical, in part, is about that. In the musical, what in Alice in Wonderland is the trial of the tarts. (laughs) It becomes a literal trial of the tarts in Act 2. And you have uh, Carolyn Chrysalids, who's a society lady who marched for Prohibition, marched part of the Dry Movement in 1919. Well, in the musical, at the end of the dream that John and Jane Allison have, she turns the tide and marches against the moral degenerate and clamps down on the world that John and Jane Allison find and explore. Right. I have two leads, John and Jane Allison. I haven't talked about them much. I got I to gotta fix that. <laughs> so, well, Jane and John both meet Julian and Duchess, um, the female impersonator and the black lesbian singer. And they have adventures with them. And Jane ends up going to bed with Duchess. And John ends up going to bed with Julian. And then Jane and John suddenly wake up in the same bed and realize that they've gone to bed with these other people. And so they have a moment of crisis for their marriage And for their own identity and who they are, they don't understand what happened. And maybe it's all just a dream anyway, because it's been a strange, crazy night. It doesn't make sense within the laws of physics, just like in Alice in Wonderland. And when they wake up from this dream after the trial of the Tarts, and Jane goes, you know, you are all a pack of lies um, she says, you all a pack of cards in the book. But in the musical, she says, you're all a pack of lies. And she says, stuff and nonsense, just like in the book. And John says, I can't stand this any longer, just like Alice does in Through the Looking Glass. And Alice in Through the Looking Glass tears a sheet off a table. Well, John does the same, tears the, dais, uh, the sheet off the dais of the queen and the king who are holding the trial and tries to give it to Julian, who's lost his dress so he can make a makeshift dress. They try to save their friends, basically. And then they wake up and they don't know if it really happened or not, or if only they had the dream and not their spouse. And then they say something to each other, and they realize, oh, we both had the same dream, and now we have to face what we learned about ourselves and what we saw about the other. And that's the story of the musical, how the two characters learn to speak easy about things that they didn't even realize about themselves, things that were secret, and I leave it up to the audience to decide, you know, are they both gay? Are they bisexual? Was it just a dream? What is really going on? But what they basically say to each other, I love you, and I'm going. we're going to have to figure this out now, which is the prosaic way, which sounds much prettier in the song. <laughs> um, but that's how the show ends. That's
0: you know. what music's for, right? Right, you know.
6: <laughs> subtext is ugly, but, you know, the, the, the poetry <laughs> is pretty.
0: So what I'm sensing here that seems pretty interesting is you've got in a way, an adaptation of Through the Looking Glass, mixed with real historical subculture figures. Right. So how much is true? How much did you have to fictionalize to work in? What was that process of... of-
6: well, what I said um, before about what happened to Julian Eltinge, that he ended up not being able to perform the way he used to. He couldn't put on the dress anymore. And there was there is a documented um, performance in L.A., some dive, they, that's what they call it, and he was in a tux and the dress you would be wearing for the act was hanging from a hanger. That did happen to him. It may have only happened once, but it did happen to him, and he did end up um, dying under strange circumstances, whether it was alcohol, you know, he probably was an alcoholic, it was maybe in brain aneurysm, it was sticky, basically. He did really well in the 20s, he didn't do well in the 30s, that is historical. He performed Broadway. He performed The West End. He was on cruise ships. He was in movies, too, um, co-starring with, I think, Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin, one of those two, in, in a short <clears throat> in a short comedy, comedy short in the 1920s. So that's documented. Um, whether he was gay is not clear. The history says that... Really, a
0: lot of those people back then. It's well, not clear. That well, they well,
6: well, well, in, in, in uh, Gladys Metley's case, she was out. She was out. And then she had to recant, basically, because she had been so out about it. In his case, he was constantly engaged to women. Never married, but was constantly engaged. And then he would uh, have these fights, bar fights with men, which people believe were probably staged. So he was putting on a macho front or acting the macho man in public while putting on the dress and being evidently a very believable woman on stage. There was, um, I read in one book where a uh, transvestite or a crossdresser was arrested on the streets of New York. And the police report said, you know, he was very believable. The quote was, he was a veritable Julian Eltinch. So some cop on the street knew enough about Julian Eltinch to compare someone he was arresting for crossdressing admiringly saying that guy was really believable as a woman. He was a veritable Julian Elton. So that's historical. And, but, and certain actors, I think Tallulah Bankhead is even quoted as saying that she thought he was probably gay. But no one knew for certain. There is no smoking gun. Gladys Bentley, she was out about it. And, um, and she staged those mock weddings with, you know, blonde ladies and stuff like that. I mean, She was really pushing the envelope. And it's known that she was a singer at the Obangi Club, which was one of the clubs in Harlem which were interracial, which were more welcoming, unlike the Cotton Club, Mm -hmm. where you could perform if you were a black, but you couldn't sit in the audience, you know, and you had to take one entrance to get in. There were other clubs in Harlem that were more welcoming. And then there were basement dives or more hidden clubs where, you know, um, homosexuals would meet in, um, of all races. I mean, if you were a white man or a white woman who was dating, or even a friend with an African-American at the time, you could go to dinner or meet, you you had to go to Harlem to be comfortable. If the two of you even went to a restaurant just to have dinner in Midtown, you might not get served. Um, So that was the situation. Um, What's also historical, what I hadn't mentioned yet, is the big drag balls that took place in those days. The Hamilton Lodge Ball was one of the most famous ones, but there were others like the Fun Makers Ball, and they were bigger than anything we've had nowadays. They were bigger than Paris is Burning. Um, They say that in one of them, up to 2,000 men and women, mostly men, would be dressed up, uh, men as women, women as men, in a costume parade and vying for prizes, while several thousand more people were in the balconies watching. Like, upper crust Manhattan Park Avenue crowd went to these balls to watch Every The drag queens, basically, you know, they didn't use that term necessarily for themselves. And there's, you know, in, in the book that I gave you, I've got all the photos from newspaper clippings of the era. And what is remarkable is not just how, you know, gay it was in every sense of the word, but also how interracially mixed it was. And there are also a lot of those photos are already on my website, dannyashkenazi.com, Notes from a Composer. A man, two guys dressed to the nines, looking like 1930s movie stars, and one of them is black, one of them is white, cheek to cheek, smiling for the photographer. Um, Short little guy in a a suit, white guy dancing with a big black drag queen, you know, smiling for the cameras. You know, it's all very friendly, and it's all very in good fun, but, you know, the... It doesn't show the animus that was in society against this thing. Those articles look like, oh, isn't this fun? And yeah. it's all very nice. Um, but by the late 30s, the last of those balls have taken place. They didn't last into the 40s. So the the societal change, the backlash, the conservative backlash that happened in, ni- in the 1930s eventually also killed those balls, which had been hugely successful in the 1920s.
0: Well, thank you so much. We're about out of time here, Danny Ashkenazi. Yeah. Nazi. And um, best of luck with your, this show, with the rest of your composing career, and thank you so much for being
6: so open and honest sharing with us. All right, thank you for having me. I really do appreciate it. Harlem,
2: it's so becoming.
4: Let's all go slumming in the wild of town. Oh, 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 Harlem. It's a wow, it's the catch me out. Take me up and ease me down. Oh, the Harlem
3: nightclubs reign supreme. <laughs>
0: Listening Room All right, I promised you another song from composer-lyricist Ryan Scott Oliver. This is also from his musical in development, We Foxes. And this song is called Map of Scars.
3: All these days I've waited for salvation But them angels don't come I've been blind and I've been voiceless Had no mind, chose to be choiceless I thought patience led to good Just a kid did the best I could Beaten down now Tired from standing still The angels still don't come Again with good old grief At River's Bend Laid too long With no desire Burned to kindle Others' fire Ain't never Asked for much My first mistake In a life you keep Just half your take Got nothing now But a back to I see angels all around Very loves I will keep From my arms Take my illusions And fling them deep I will be damned If I should follow Ain't no lamb No flock to follow The now boils In my veins And melts the ice Still I shiver I'm deliverance I am sacrifice
1: Call.
0: Well, that wraps up another great episode of Broadway Bullet. Our next episode, Volume 704, is going to be coming on Tuesday, March 1st, and it's another great one for you. We got two guys from Hamilton, Stephanie Clemens, who is swing and dance captain, and Andrew Chappelle, who is swinging five roles in Hamilton, which is just crazy. How crazy? Make sure you tune into the next episode to find out. We also have really hot up-and-coming playwright, James Tyler, and Jonathan Rockefeller, who is doing a stage adaptation of The Very Hungry Caterpillar, and he talks about the show and uh, what went into getting rights for that, and what he learned being Boz Lerman's protégé out of Australia. Yeah, so you don't want to miss that. So subscribe, tell your friends who love theater, tell your fellow students who love theater, tell your teachers who love theater. If you're a teacher, tell your students about it the best advertising we can get is you guys spreading the word about all the various things that are on this program. So saying farewell for now, I am Michael Gilbo, your host and producer for the program. Also like to thank our associate producer for this season, Ronnie Jones, who I hear has already made the jump and moved to NYC. All right, look out for her. She's a great gal. And I'd like to give a special thanks again to this season's location sponsors. Yep. The DG Fund that you heard all about. They're a great help. Their space is awesome. And also, again, special thanks to Sheer Madness, the comedy in NYC. Uh, we use their rehearsal space for some of the things, too. So thank you, guys. Support our sponsors. Tell your friends. And uh, make sure you tune in for the next episode. Thanks. All the And you need to manage that, to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution.